You're listening to The Way Home with Daniel Darling, a proud member of the Venom Audio Network. Well, hello and welcome to The Way Home Podcast, my friends. I'm so glad that you're joining me today uh, for another fun episode. Wherever you're joining me from, whether you're uh, taking a walk in the neighborhood or you're in the carpool line with your kids or maybe you're washing dishes as as I often uh, do. I, I usually listen to podcasts and audiobooks when I'm doing my uh, my dad chore of washing the dishes every night. Uh, if you like the podcast, would you subscribe to it so it can come download to your device uh, every week? Uh, and, or would you be interested in writing a review on whatever platform that you use? If you write that review, you can go to my website, danieldarling.com contact me through the contact page. And if you send me a copy of that in that contact form, uh, I would love to send you a free autographed copy of my latest book, A Way With Words, um, just as a just a thank you for doing that. Okay, today we have a great guest lined up for us, uh, Jordan Rayner. Jordan is uh, just a really interesting person. He uh, is a serial entrepreneur. He's a national best-selling author who has helped uh, millions of Christians around the world connect the gospel to their work through his podcast, devotionals, and his books. Uh, he's got a great newsletter that uh, I subscribe to that just really has some great productivity tips, things about work and faith. Uh, I really enjoy that. He's the executive chairman of Threshold 360, which, which is a venture-backed tech startup. Uh, he is a highly sought-after speaker, and he uh, actually served in the White House under President George W. Bush, which I asked him about because uh, I'm a huge fan of the Bushes and a pre- presidential history. Uh, he's got a new book called Redeeming Your Time, Seven Biblical Principles for Being Purposeful, Present, and Wildly Productive. I love Jordan's work. He's got several other books that are helpful, uh, like Call to Create, Master of One, and just really talking about creativity and work and, and how we sh- as Christians should think about that. I like this book, Redeeming Your Time, because it's he talks about productivity, but in a really gospel-centered way, in a way that if you're like me and you're super creative and the idea of spreadsheets and 15 journals and a thousand different uh, productivity tools kind of makes your head spin, he's going to reassure you to say, there's some of those things that we really should use and there's ways that we can get ourselves organized, uh, but we can do it in a way that fits who God has made us to be and do it in a way that doesn't heap on more guilt. So without further ado, let's join this podcast with Jordan Rayner. All right, it's great to have Jordan Rayner here on the Way Home Podcast. Jordan, thanks for joining me today, man. Yeah, thanks for having me, Daniel. This is uh, cool to be with you. So Jordan, uh, man, there's so many places we could go in our conversation and you've written some really great books and I appreciate your newsletter. Really great stuff about uh, creativity, about time management, about all kinds of stuff, you know, as a creative myself, about leadership. And I find it really immensely practical and helpful. So I want to encourage folks to get that. And I was like, man, I need to have Jordan on my podcast. Um, you have a new book out called Redeeming Your Time. You have a great book called called to create, which I think is probably your best selling book so far. And yeah, I um, think so. Yeah. Has really helped a lot of people think through creativity from a Christian perspective. You know, I, I think one of the things you've helped us do 
is sometimes we compartmentalize the work we do and our faith. And uh, you've sort of helped us see that creating stuff, making stuff, like I like to do, whether it's articles or books or rebuilding organizations or whatever, that's a God-given calling, which, you know, obviously we see in Genesis, right, as part of the creation mandate. But that seems like that's sort of your your calling to help people see that. Yeah, I would describe my call as just helping the church rediscover the biblical narrative of work, right? You know, you mentioned Genesis 1, you know, before God tells us that he is holy or loving or omnipotent, he tells us that he's a God who creates, right? Like, this is radical. Uh, and it's actually unique in the history of world religions. Every other religion says that the gods created human beings to work and serve the gods. Only Christianity starts with a God who himself rolls up his sleeves and works to serve us, right? Like that gives just untold dignity and meaning to the work that we all do today as his image bears, right? Genesis 1.27 tells us that we're created in the image of God. And up until verse 27, basically he's revealed one thing about his image. He's a God who works and creates, right? So uh, naturally, this is part of how we will be marked as his image bearers. We were talking before we started recording, Daniel. And I think a lot of times um, we treat day six as the end of the creation account. Day six is the beginning, right? God left the earth largely uh, a blank canvas and told his image bearers, hey, go fill up this thing. Fill the earth yeah. and subdue it. Day six is just the beginning, Right. I think yeah. we just like tragically lost that. And we church. need to recover that. You know, it's something yeah. that the reformers talked a lot about. It's something a ton that, about. Um, you know, the early church fathers talked a lot about. Um, I, I wrote a little bit about this in the Dignity Revolution. When I talked about human dignity and I love how you frame this because Christianity has has such a robust vision for. Uh, what it means to be human, but but we're talking specifically here about work. And really answers a lot of the questions people have about work. On the one hand, does this work have any meaning? But on the other hand, why is it sometimes hard? And Genesis answers both that, you know, obviously that um, when we work and create, we're imaging a God who works and creates. But also because of sin, the ground fights back. There's thorns and thistles. Things are frustrating. And so it, yeah, I, I love how you you frame that because- but, but- but it also you know, gives us this vision, Daniel. I think I've seen you write, write about this before, actually. Uh, of of yes, thorns and thistles uh, make our work difficult today. But Isaiah sixty five promises us that part of our eternal dwelling with God on the new earth includes work. Right? I think so many of yeah. us view heaven oh, as this. Does soulless, terrible, honestly boring uh, existence, if we can say that. But now Isaiah 65 says, we will not labor in vain. We're going back to the Garden City, uh, to quote my friend John Mark Comer, uh, and we're going to work today. We're going to work again. We're going to plant vineyards. We're going to build houses, Isaiah 65 says, uh, and we will long enjoy the work of our hands. It's this beautiful picture the scripture gives us, which I think is winsome to Christ followers, obviously, but also to the unchurched, uh, to those not yet walking with Jesus. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, God has a vision for your work that's better than the vision you have for yourself. 
it's it's so true. Like when you, you talking about the fact that we we do move from a garden to a city, that uh, we're not going back to Eden. We're actually going forward, and uh, Eden Eden is unfinished and raw, and God giving us the raw materials. The New Jerusalem is the second Adam doing what the first Adam couldn't do and inviting us into this this kind of work. And work will be we'll still have work, but it won't be frustrating. It won't be hard. I mean, it'll be hard, but it won't be frustrating, and it won't there won't be those thorns and thistles. I, I just love that vision of it. Um, and I, I think one thing that's so interesting to me too is when you really understand this that good creative work, whatever field it is, whether it's my father who is a retired plumber and he, you know, put pipes and walls and made toilets and sinks run, or it's an artist, all this kind of work glorifies God. And even if you're not a believer, you know, the what's created by image bearers reflects on the creator. So like if you watch a an athlete uh in doing some incredible feat or or an artist, they don't have to be Christians for the work of this image bearer to reflect back on the image giver. So I I, I love I love this conversation and really giving meaning to work because I think a lot of our people in our churches, maybe not so much now, but I think in previous generations, I think there's been a you know sort of renaissance in the faith and work movement. But even so, Jordan, I see a lot of people in our churches who work Monday through Friday think, man, I I serve the Lord on Sunday, but you know I have to do this work Monday through Friday. They feel like I've had people tell me because I've been in you know ministry life, oh, man, I wish I could serve the Lord every day like you do. And I'm like, you are serving the Lord every day. So have you found that as well as, as you're able to kind of give people a vision for their work? Totally. And I think this is, uh, I think Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 helps clear this up the most in the church of my experience. You know, Ephesians, we're very familiar with Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, right? We are saved by faith, not by work so that no one can boast. So we are not saved by our works, But the Apostle Paul goes on to say in verse 10 that we've been created in Christ Jesus, i.e. born again. Why? For good works that God prepared in advance for us to do. The very purpose of our salvation is to do good works that bring glory to the Father. And a lot of people are like, well, Jordan, come on. Good works, when Paul uses that word, when Jesus uses that word, they're talking about evangelism. And they're talking about giving to the poor. Yeah, I would encourage you to go study your concordance, right? Uh, the Greek word here, ergon, uh, according to every concordance I've ever found, it means, quote, work, task, and employment, right? The very purpose of your life, the very purpose of your salvation, a uh, part of it is just to go to work every day and do that work in accordance with God's word, do it with excellence and in genuine love of others and in so doing, bring glory to the Father. Yeah, that's that's a great, uh, great word. So uh, you have a book called The Create. You have a book called Master of, of One. And now you have this new book called uh, Redeeming Your Time. And one of the things I like about this book, Jordan, is I, you know, I'm a creative. And I confess that I, I have a hard time sometimes with the kind of productivity books, uh, not because they're not really good. But, um, you know, the way the mind of a creative sometimes works is that, you know, like I don't get up every day in the morning just loving like spreadsheets and <laughs> complicated journals and charts. Now, I have some friends that are, that are like that and they're great people and they just live for like, I'm going to journal, 
you know, every two hours and then I'm going to have a bigger journal every week and then I'm going to have a spreadsheet and then I'm going to have three like software programs that are going to, and I'm like, man, you guys could spend time in time management. I'm actually doing stuff, but that's just not how I'm wired and other people are wired differently. So you kind of took a different approach to time management that seems like it um, is a little bit more suited for guys like me. I hope so. Right. Like, and listen, like I'll, I'll be the first to admit on the front end here that I am a disciplined person, but I've always had a couple of really big problems with books in this genre, which by the way, let's just, you know, say this at the beginning. This is by far the most cluttered genre of books in the world. There, there is 60,000 time management books on Amazon right now, which is just silly, right? But I wanted to write one because I have two major problems with these books. Number one is what you talked about, that it, it, the message is, unless you're crazy disciplined, you can't find peace, right? It's what we might call works-based productivity. It's, you know, hey, you're feeling swamped, you're feeling overwhelmed, do exercises X, Y, and Z, be hyper-disciplined, and then you will find peace. Yeah, as Christ followers, uh, we already have peace, right? Paul promises us in Romans 5.1, we have ultimate peace with God. So we could take a different approach, what I would call grace-based productivity, which says that, yeah, I care about time management. I care, as Paul says, about redeeming my time, but not to get peace, Right? I do it in response to the peace that has already been graciously given to me. And I, I just think that's a very different foundation for a book. So that's the first reason why I wanted to write this thing. The second reason, which I'll just touch on briefly, you know, I, I've read 45-ish of the perennial bestsellers in this category of time management books, and not one of them has ever accounted for how the author of time managed his time. When he came to earth in the person of Jesus Christ, this is crazy to me, right? We are so accustomed. John Mark Comer makes this point really eloquently. He says, you know, we're so accustomed to reading the gospels for their theology and their ethics that we forget that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are also biographies of the life of Jesus of Nazareth, right? And no, they don't show Jesus walking around with a to-do list or a smartwatch, but they do show him dealing with distractions at work and fighting for solitude and seeking to be busy without being hurried, right? So in other words, the gospel biographies show Jesus facing a lot of the same challenges you and I face today as we seek to steward our limited time. And because he was God, we can assume that Jesus managed his time perfectly, right? And so that's what redeeming your time is, right? I've taken these seven timeless time management principles that I think we could see clearly in the Gospels, right, and map them to more than 30 practices to help us live out those principles in our modern context. That's really good. Uh, you know, I I look here at a few things that you say make this different. And, and admittedly, when I say that I have a hard time with time management books, it's not necessarily because they're poorly written. It's because I know that there's areas that I need to become more disciplined and I and I and I've been able to in the last few years because I do feel like discipline allows you actually to accomplish and achieve more. Uh one of my good friends Drew Dick wrote his great book uh you know your future self will thank you about yeah, sort of how book. to getting to a place of discipline some of the science behind it. But what I like about yours and you you have three things that make this book unique and I love for you to talk through them. One, you talk about it centered on grace-based productivity and you, and you you shared a little bit about what what that means. 
Um, number two, it accounts for how the author of time managed his time. And you, you shared a little bit uh, about how Jesus manages time, which I think is very fascinating because we don't really honestly think about that very much. Uh, and number three, it connects the previously disconnected pieces of the time management puzzle. What are those disconnected pieces that we're, yeah. we don't think about it's, in the time management puzzle? Yeah. So before I wrote this book, I would take a lot of coffee meetings with friends who are struggling in this area, just struggling to manage all their commitments and whatever. And over the course of an hour long coffee or lunch or whatever it was, I would recommend, no joke, like a dozen books that that person absolutely had to read to fully solve their problems, which of course is like literally the last thing on earth that person wants to hear. They don't have time to read one book, much less 12. But the thing is, all of those books contained a critical piece of the time management puzzle, but no one of them contained all the pieces and connected them together. I'll give you a great example. I'm a big fan of the book Deep Work by Cal Newport, all mm. about how can we do deep focused work in our crazy distracted age. That is a critical piece of the time management puzzle. It's a critical piece of modeling Jesus's ability to be fully focused on one person or task at a time. But it's not the only piece. You also have to recognize the tremendous value of rest in between blocks of deep work and rest at night, uh, getting an eight-hour sleep opportunity, as Dr. Matthew Walker talked about in his terrific book, Why We Sleep. So those are just two of the many pieces of this puzzle. And listen, we all know the shtick, right? All of these books, as great as they are, basically have 10 pages worth of, <laughs> of golden content. So my audacious goal was, all right, let's take the essence of all the best that's been written on this topic over the last 50 or so years and connect them all together. And I really believe Jesus is the glue. His example is the glue that pieces all of those pieces of the puzzle together. Yeah, I think that's so true. And, you know, having on-ramps for people who have different kind of um... – the way they're wired differently and yes. kind of different work. Having grace and empathy. That's the other thing, man. Like so many of these books are like, hey, you have to do exactly what I say and you have to do it all and you have to do it all right now. Otherwise it won't work. That's just a, a really life-sucking way to approach this uh, this topic. And I just don't think it's true. You know, this book has 32 practices in it uh, to help us live out these seven principles we see in the life of Christ. I say in the introduction, listen, one of them, can change your life in some pretty radical ways, right? You don't need all 32. Pick and choose the ones that work for you. I have one perspective on this topic, right? Uh, and that's just one, right? You take these things and make it your own. And as I've been reading through the reviews of this book, one of the things that's brought me a lot of joy is hearing people say that this book was freeing right? Uh, it gave them flexibility to take these principles, uh, which I do think apply to all of us because I do think we see them in the life of Christ, but adapt them greatly as to how exactly we practice them in the 21st century. Hello, friends. I just want to tell you about a really new partnership uh, that we have developed with an amazing company called Canopy. I don't know about you, but as a parent, I find it increasingly difficult to monitor my children's internet consumption with all the devices and computers. And how do you balance safety on the internet in terms of objectionable content, pornography, and things that we don't want them to see with 
speed and use of the internet for things that they need, like their homework, getting a hold of them. My oldest one is driving and I want to be able to, her to have a way to get a hold of me. How do you do that? Well, sometimes it feels like you have to prioritize either speed and accuracy and accessibility or safety. Well, my friends at Canopy have developed this really neat tool that they beta tested in Israel. And it's so good, they brought it over to the United States. And it uses this proprietary technology uh, using artificial intelligence to block objectionable images, but not always necessarily websites. And so how this works is that even on your, their phones, if someone texts them something objectionable or they're going to a website that they need to go to, but there's objectionable images, it doesn't block the website, but it'll block the, the images from coming through. And it works uh, in multiple apps that are on their phone in ways that a lot of other filters don't. It's a great, great tool. And if you are a Way Home listener, you can go to canopy.us slash wayhome. That's canopy.us slash wayhome, C-A-N-O-P-Y dot U-S slash wayhome. And you can get a special discount. Your first 30 days free and 20% off of Canopy for life. So you want to do that. Go to canopy.us slash wayhome and check this out. It's a great tool that I know you will use and, and be thankful for as a parent. So I do have to ask you this because I see in your bio that you actually worked in the White House for George W. Bush. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I'm a huge George W. Bush fan. He's the best. I'm a huge fan of American presidential history. Oh, great. So this could get fun. Yeah. It will get fun, I think. <laughs> um, so please tell me what that experience was like. What did you do in the George W. White House? And what was that experience like? And kind of what did it teach you? Yeah, so uh, this is my first professional love was politics. Uh, I was I had I did a semester long internship in the White House Office of Political Affairs, and it was an incredible experience. Basically, my job my my boss was responsible for the southeastern United States, and so anytime the president, vice president, first lady, whatever, secretary of state, some other surrogate would travel to the southeast. My boss would fly with them and brief them on what was going on politically in that area. And so basically for four months, this is where I learned how to write. I wrote political briefings for the president. <laughs> mm. And my, my boss would take it, rip it to shreds, give me tons of invaluable feedback, and then go take that finished product and use it to brief W or whoever it was on Air Force One or Air Force Two, whatever. I was awesome. This just unbelievable, unforgettable Man. experience. So many great stories from those four months. It was a blast. Yeah. And I imagine just the, what you learned in terms of writing, right? That, that is so invaluable to just get that feedback and, and also just have to produce quickly. And Oh yeah. There's a gun to your head and is like, tight. Hey, uh, you got to write this eight page document for the president in the next 48 hours. Right. <laughs> Figure so it out. Fast and tight and good and getting feedback. You know, when I, when I was younger, was I'm in my 20s, uh, I had a job with a Christian organization and I wasn't writing my own voice, which is probably good because I didn't really, you know, I was 20, I didn't know anything. Um, but I was doing a lot of um, writing, ghostwriting, uh, writing fundraising letters, writing devotionals based on sermons, writing articles, all that stuff. And, I, and it was for this monthly publication. And I had to produce every month for years and years and years. And, you know, at the time I didn't realize how you know, what was happening. But looking back, I said that really like disciplined me how to write fast and write tight. 
and yeah, uh, right well, on deadline. And you had other people reviewing your stuff, right? Like that's the key. I, I talk about this in my previous book, Master of One. One of the keys to mastering anything vocationally, especially something creative like writing, is rapid feedback. Right. And so my experience at the White House was just a masterclass. It was four months of crazy rapid feedback on my writing. And at the time, I didn't think I was going to, you know, make a living with words. Uh, but eventually uh, that that's what happened. And that that experience is a big part of the reason why. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was both the rapid feedback, but it was also just the the kind of deadline. And I'm, I'm I don't know about you. I'm someone that has is kind of a deadline guy. So I am not someone who says, oh, I'm going to get up every morning and write 5,000 words. I have friends that do that and it works really great. For, for, but for, for me, if I sign myself up for deadlines, it forces me to write. And that experience was so good. And it's kind of – and I don't know how you feel about this, but Malcolm Gladwell's sort of 10,000-hour rule. Like like if if you're doing something uh, long enough, you get good at it. Obviously, it has to be something in your wheelhouse, something you have some kind of talent for. But just doing it over and over again – helps you perfect it, right? Yeah, totally. And, you know, Gladwell's 10,000 hour rule popularized the research of Dr. Anders Ericsson at my alma mater, Florida State. That was the basis of of Gladwell's rule. And what Ericsson will tell you is it's not just 10,000 hours of practice. It's 10,000 hours of purposeful practice, Mm. which distinguishes itself from naive practice in some pretty significant ways. One of those ways is that you got to get rapid feedback. And the other one is that it has to be hard. You have to constantly be putting more weight on the bar. And one of the ways you do that is by really tight deadlines. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I really do. I, I'd love to hear a little bit about your journey into this kind of work. Were you always a creative growing up? Were you someone who enjoyed writing like I did from a young age? Did you have someone come along and say, hey, I think this is a talent of yours you should pursue? Uh, did you sort of take a straight path into this? Is it a crooked path? Let's share a little bit about your, your story. Uh, yeah, very this. crooked. So I already mentioned, you know, my first love vocationally was politics. Uh, I was 17 years old. My first real job, uh, I had a mentor of mine ask me to run his campaign. He was running citywide here in my hometown of Tampa, uh, for the county commission And I was 17. I had no business running a campaign, but he trusted me and I ran it and we won to my shock. I think probably even more to his shock. And uh, so that was the path for a long time. That's what led me to the White House and a couple of other things. And then kind of the first big pivot for me was recognizing that um, cultural change is very rarely legislated. It is almost always created for the bottom up uh, through great art and through business and the stories that businesses tell. And I do think businesses tell stories. So that was the first big pivot. I pivoted away from politics towards entrepreneurship. I spent the first 10 years of my career out of college as a tech entrepreneur. I started and sold a couple of different companies. And you know, fast forward today, today I, I really view myself as a content entrepreneur of sorts. Uh, I spend 100% of my time writing books, creating podcasts, all under this broad mission of helping Christians connect God's word to their work, right? So how did I get there? Well, uh, about about five years into my career, I was selling my second tech startup. And I um, 
was, you know, when you're selling your second company, the natural thing to do is start a third. Uh, and so that was the plan. But I went to church one Sunday and heard a very familiar sermon, uh, unfortunately. This guy making me feel guilty that I was thinking about starting a business when there was a need for people to go plant churches all around the world. And so my wife and I started praying about these two paths. Are we going to plant a church? Are we going to start another business? And by the grace of God alone, I had a godly mentor in my life pull me aside one day and just told me something I didn't expect. He's like, hey, I heard you're thinking about planting a church. I was like, yeah, aren't you proud of me? He's like, no. Why would you do this? Like, you are clearly a talented entrepreneur. You've created a lot of jobs. Don't you get that your work as an entrepreneur is ministry? And I was like, I, I literally have no idea what you're talking about. And so he gave me a copy of Every Good Endeavor by Tim Keller. Uh, and it changed my life, helped me rediscover what we talked about at the beginning of this conversation, this biblical narrative of work. And so I, I still had a lot of questions about how the gospel shaped my work specifically as an entrepreneur. And so I just went out and started doing research, started doing interviews, filled up a moleskin and realized there was a book here. And uh, that book ended up being called The Create. And so I, I wasn't planning on creating content full-time. But when Call the Crate came out, um, yeah, it just exploded way beyond my expectations. And I was just looking at the fruit of what God was producing in my career. And that just clearly was showing signs of divine multiplication that was like, I got to pour more water on these seeds. Uh, and so I actually stepped down uh, as the CEO of this very well-funded tech startup that I was running at the time so I could chase hard after this work that I believe God's called me to do now. Mm, I love that. And I love that you mentioned Every Good Endeavor by, by Keller, one of the best books on work. I highly recommend everybody go read that book. Um, I kind of had a similar evolution on the on on this topic of work and faith i'd always been a little unnerved growing up in the church context i grew up in that um you know pastors and missionaries people who kind of get paychecks from 501c3 which is me by the way i've always worked for christian organizations and that's been my calling i love that part of my life you know i've always felt that calling but i always felt like we were almost like considered the real heroes and the and the sort of guys like my dad who are plumbers we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, it's, you know, you can tithe and you can, you know, you can feed your family. That's good. And maybe you can, you know, slip a tract under the cubicle at work. Um, but your work really essentially has no meaning. I mean, no one said that, but that's what it was. So I started, it really bothered me. But I think when I read Tom Nelson's book, uh, Work Matters, Connecting Sunday Worship to to Monday Work, it really kind of opened my eyes and I started reading more stuff, uh, particularly Keller and others. So it's interesting to see you have that same kind of uh thought process and kind of journey in this. Okay. We have a little bit more time with you. So I want to close with a couple of questions. Number one, if you're speaking right now to someone who is a creative, you know, whether they're a writer or they're a speaker, they're an author, they're an artist, whatever, what is one piece of advice you would like to give them? I would give you some encouragement because, because the, the people you just described typically see themselves as undisciplined and unable to cultivate discipline. I point you to William Wilberforce. Wilberforce was elected to the British Parliament when he was 21 years old, was saved when he was 26, almost dropped out of Parliament, 
Uh, but thank God for his friend, John Newton, uh, the pastor who wrote Amazing Grace, the hymn Amazing Grace. Newton was like, don't drop out of Parliament. Just change your relationship to your work. And so when that happened, Wilberforce made two great changes in his life. Number one, he changed the object of his work away from his own you know, self-glory to uh, his great object, the abolition of the slave trade throughout the British Empire. Uh, no small thing. And he radically changed how he managed his time. Because according to Wilberforce himself, if you read his journals, he claimed to be a, quote, undisciplined mess <laughs> and unconstitutionally weak with regards to self-discipline. And yet he was so compelled by the gospel, so compelled to do what Paul says in Ephesians 5, 16, to redeem his time because the days are evil that he figured it out and he learned it. Uh, and he went on to become one of the most productive people of all time, largely responsible for abolishing the slave trade in the British Empire uh, in 1807. So that's my encouragement to us. The gospel compels us to redeem our time. And disciplined or not, uh, the way we do this can absolutely be learned by anybody. That's really good. And I guess the second piece of advice before we close, if if you're someone who is a, uh, I would say a pastor listening, what advice would you give them to help empower the people in their church who work Monday through Friday, which is really most Christians, right? Most Christians are working, you know, sort of quote unquote regular jobs. So I'll give, I could take this a bunch of different directions, but I'll, I'll give you something super practical. Commission the people in your church, visibly commission them to go out into the mission field of their workplaces. We're so used to seeing pastors bring people up on stage who are leaving Topeka, Kansas or Tampa, Florida or San Francisco to go out into the quote-unquote mission field of you know Southeast Asia or Africa, whatever. Why aren't we doing this for teachers when they go back to school? Why aren't we doing this for the entrepreneurs in our congregations that just started a new business, right? Or the writers who just signed a book deal to make the redemptive qualities of Christ winsome to a general market, right? I legit like I'm 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 speaking like very concretely. I literally want to see more pastors asking people on Sunday mornings, "Hey, who is going to a new job tomorrow morning? Please stand." Great. We are sending you out, right? Go, I'll, I'll end with this, Daniel. We have grossly misinterpreted Jesus' words in the Great Commission. Matthew 28, 19, where he says, go and make disciples. The Greek word go there is what's called an aorist tense passive participle. If we can get super nerdy for a second, right? And what that means, go look up any concordance right now right? The better translation of this is having gone make disciples. Jesus assumed that the disciples had already gone as fishermen, as tax collectors, right? Jesus himself never went more than 200 miles away from his own hometown, and yet he was the greatest disciple maker of all time. It wasn't about how far he went. It was about what he did while he was going. And the same can be true, should be true for you and me. So pastors, 
Please help your congregations see this. Please help your congregations see that the word full-time missionary should be eradicated from the church's vernacular because it's absurd. We all should view ourselves as full-time missionaries on mission to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Jordan Rayner, uh, thank you for joining us today. Your book, Redeeming Your Time, is available. We'll have links to it in the show notes. I want everyone to go check out all the great resources that Jordan has. Jordan, thank you for, for your work and for the way that you encourage uh, us to uh, fulfill uh, what God has called us to do. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Dean. Thank you for listening to this edition of The Way Home Podcast with Daniel Darling. For more information, you can visit danieldarling.com. If you do like this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast catcher. We also encourage you to rate and review so others can know about the podcast. You can follow me at, at @dandarling on Twitter or go to my Facebook page, facebook.com slash danielmdarling. I also want to encourage you again to check out my latest book, Away With Words, and you can visit awaywithwordsbook.com. Thank you for listening again to The Way Home Podcast. podcast is part of the Edify Podcast Network. Edify is a faith-inspiring app that brings together thousands of the best Christian podcasts in one place for your listening enjoyment. Cut through the noise and grow your faith by diving into the world's top Christian podcasts today. Download the Edify app for free from the App Store or Google Play or by going to edify.app. That's E-D-I-F-I dot app.